0: morning everyone so glad to see y'all here this morning welcome once again to chatham community church my name is jaime and i am one of the pastors here if you are a guest whether it's your first time with us or it's been a while since you've been with us welcome once again Uh, So glad you've joined us. If you either have never received one or can't remember if you received one on your way out, if you've not gotten it on your way in, make sure you pick up one of our welcome gifts. In addition to having information about us and what we do here in Chatham County, uh, it also contains uh, one or two gifts from uh, local businesses that we like to share with the community. It's a way for us both to support these local businesses financially, but also just to get the word out that they're here and uh, that they produce good stuff. So make sure you... Pick one up on your way out if you've not uh, grabbed one yet. Uh, And I'd love to say hi to you. So at the end of the service, uh, for a little bit, I'm going to be in the back. Uh, Please come by. I'd love to hear your name, how you found our church, and what your experience was like this morning. Uh, When she set sail just over 100 years ago, uh, the Titanic was the largest ocean liner uh, in service, largest private ocean liner in service. She was a luxury ocean liner and looked every bit the part. With everything from swimming pools to luxury cabins and everything in between, she was an engineering marvel. And she was part of White Star Line's new class of ships, the Olympic class of ships. Her maiden voyage attracted lots of attention, and lots of famous people wanted to be on that maiden voyage. She was called unsinkable. This was a signature moment in transatlantic ocean travel. But less than five days later, the unthinkable happened. The Titanic struck an iceberg, and the unsinkable ship was no longer afloat. Now, this was not an inevitable outcome. They'd received warnings that there were icebergs in the area, but they seemingly made no changes in how they they were navigating. The binoculars that their lookouts could have used to spot the ship, to spot the iceberg from afar, were locked up, but they didn't see the iceberg until it was too late to turn. See, knowing what was possible, knowing what was up ahead, they didn't adjust. And one iceberg sunk them. We're in the home stretch of our Signature Moments series, where we've been making our way through scriptures and looking at the key moments in the lives of the stories of the women and men that are contained in the ancient scriptures. Uh, these were the kinds of moments that transformed their lives that shaped their legacy. They were moments that either came part of the trajectory that these people were already on in their pursuit of God and God's purpose for their lives, or they were turning points where these people turned their lives to God and their lives took on a new trajectory. Last week, we took a big picture view. We stepped back from signature moments and looked at the scriptures gathered for the life of Timothy, and we talked about how God doesn't just want us to have signature moments, but wants us to live a signature life. But there are things that can sink a signature life. There are things that can undermine our ability to live lives that make a difference, to, live, to leave lasting legacies. Today we're gonna look at a couple of those things. And it's not enough to know what they are, it's not enough to anticipate that they may be on the way. The, the invitation today is to actively guard against them. It's to watch out for the icebergs that can sink a signature life. The passages that Hillary read from us come from the book of Revelation. It's the last book in most of our Bibles. Late in the first century, communities of Jesus' followers have started to emerge beyond the original location uh, where they were established in Jerusalem and even in the area in Judea. They have expanded to areas of Asia Minor and beyond. The locations that were named in the passage that Hillary read for us are in what is now modern-day Turkey. The emerging communities have faced their fair share of challenges. There have been internal challenges and there have been external challenges. In fact, many of the other letters in the New Testament that we have from Paul, from Peter, and even from John relate some of these challenges, both internal and external By the time it's believed that Revelation is being written, which is near the end of the first century, there is a significant external challenge due to the rise of the uh, imperial, imperial cult. The emperor at the time was a man named Domitian. He both claimed to be God himself, demanded worship for himself, but also persecuted and silenced what he perceived were religions that opposed or resisted him, philosophies that didn't jive, with what he was promoting. Christianity was among them. John is exiled on the island of Patmos, which is just off screen to the east in this map. And he has a series of visions as he's in exile. And he writes these letters to seven churches that you could almost imagine him being able to see at a distance the cities from where he was exiled. These are churches that had developed and survived in the midst of opposition In the midst of internal turmoil, they had thrived. And within these letters are warnings against the kinds of things that even though they'd survived thus far, would sink them as a community. We're only going to look at two today. The one written to the church at Ephesus and the one written to the church at Laodicea. Ephesus was the center of the imperial cult. So emperor worship was a big deal in Ephesus. It was so important that Domitian had labeled it had labeled Ephesus the guardian of his temple. so They were not only the center of imperial, they were zealous about emperor worship and the imperial cults. No Christian community can emerge, can survive, can thrive in that kind of environment without facing some sort of opposition, without encountering some resistance, without having to deal uh, with um, things that rise up against them. But in all that, the church in Ephesus has endured. In all that, the church in Ephesus has survived. And they've not only survived, they've not only endured, they've not only persevered, they've actually done good in the community, Hillary read for us. They've weeded out leaders who tried to gain influence but lacked integrity. They've kept the line in terms of the people who could lead them. They've kept themselves from the behaviors that were popular in the culture and in the society, but would have compromised their beliefs. They've kept themselves from those things. They've remained faithful to God. But in all that doing, in all that striving, in all that fighting for integrity, something has happened. Their love has dwindled. Their love has dwindled. See, we can do all the right things. We can check all the right boxes. We can fight all the right battles. But if we've lost love, we've lost the plot. If we lack love, we've lost the plot. Because love is a north star value for a signature life. Love is the north star value that directs us on the signature life. And when we lose sight of it, we don't just drift, we set a course for an iceberg. The bottom eventually falls out on our lives. When Jesus summarizes what it means to follow him, what it means to honor God, what it means to live the good life, the signature life, what it means or what it takes to leave a lasting legacy, he talks about two things, and both of them have to do with love. He talks about loving God with all our hearts, all our souls, all our minds, all our strength, and he talks about loving our neighbors as ourselves, loving the people God has given us to love. That comes first. That is most important. If you forget anything, it's almost like Jesus is saying, if you forget anything about what I've said, don't forget love. Because if you hold on to love, you'll be on the right path. Love is what enables everything else to fall into place, what enables us to fight the battles that we need to fight well, what enables us to do the right things at the right time with the right intention for the right fruit, love is what enables us to live a life that is life-giving and fruitful. When we lose it, when we neglect it, or even sometimes when we reject it, it doesn't matter how many of the right things we do. It doesn't matter how many of the right battles we fight. The bottom will inevitably fall out on our lives. Things will take a turn for the worse. When we meet the main character in Frederick Bachman's novel, A Man Called Uva. He is not very endearing. In fact, you almost wonder why he is the main character of this novel, and you are tempted to put it down. He seems fixated on people following the laws, following the rules, following the guidelines, and not stepping out of line. He snaps at people for apparently no good reason. He's quick to get into altercations. It's almost like he's always hungry for a fight. He holds grudges for small things. For a long time, and not surprisingly, he doesn't seem to have any friends. There seem to be no people in his life. And speaking of his life, he seems pretty set at the start of the novel on ending it. But as the novel develops, thanks to the gift of flashbacks, we get to see how he ended up in this place. We see that he loses his father in a workplace accident. Burglars set fire to his house. His wife miscarries and is paralyzed after a road incident. He has to fight to get the kinds of accommodation she is entitled to so she can continue to live out her vocation and passion as a teacher. A close friend is part of the group that freezes him out of leadership in the neighborhood that they helped establish. Eventually, he loses his wife. There's been pain connected to everything and everyone that he's ever loved or given himself to. And so he stopped loving. And in stopping loving, he's come to the point where he's given up on life. And then a few key people who really, really, really need his help. They need his help to fight for what they they need in life. They need his clarity. They need need his sort of will to do the the right things the right way. They come into his life. They come into his life, and for reasons that baffle him, they choose to love him. They communicate their love to him, and they call out love from him. And he opens his heart again to love. And where his life was about to end without love, he opens up a new chapter. Of a signature life he had fought the good fights he had cared about doing the right things the right way he had endured hardships unimaginable hardships but when he lost love his life started to crash even when we start with love there are things that can calcify our hearts pain and loss over time can calcify our hearts Ongoing adversity and opposition, having to fight and fight and fight and fight can calcify our hearts. The self-righteousness that can creep in when we consistently do the right things when others don't, that can calcify our hearts as well. It can freeze love out. And when that happens, we're on our way to an iceberg. Holding on to love in the times when it's the most difficult— in the times where it feels like it's slipping, in the times where it's most tempting to exchange it for something else that will will help us, for something else that feels like it's easier, holding on to love in those moments when it's hardest is what will keep us on the path to a signature life. And friends, holding on to love is not just important for our sake. Holding on to love, keeping love as the North Star value in our lives speaks those that are around us. Stephen Colbert is an actor, he's a comedian, he happens right now to be hosting a late night talk show. He's fairly open about his faith in a winsome way, and so he finds himself often having conversations about faith, about religion, about spirituality with his guests. They tend to bring the subject up, or they ask questions around the subject to get him to start talking about it. They seek advice from him because of how he talks about it. Colbert is no stranger to pain and loss. His father and two of his brothers died in an airplane accident when he was very young. And his faith has shaped how he's processed that loss, particularly in his adult years. Some time ago, journalist Anderson Cooper sat down with Colbert to talk about grief and to talk about loss. Cooper is no stranger to loss. He lost both his father and his brother under tragic circumstances. Colbert had been quoted earlier on as saying that he had learned to love the things that he wished hadn't happened. To love the things, the hard things that he most wished hadn't happened. And Cooper clearly is struck by this and is wondering how to process it. And he gets emotional even as he asks Colbert, Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that we can learn to love the thing we most wish hadn't happened? Cooper wants to know what he can do with all the pain he's carrying, all the loss he's experienced. And Colbert starts to talk about the gift he's received on the other side of pain and loss, which is that because he's gone through it, he can recognize other people who are going through it. He knows the way. He knows how to get through it. And he has this sense that he's been put in their lives to help them, to give them a hand, to show them a way. He's able to connect with them. And he says he's able to love them in a deep way because he's gone through what they're going through. Maybe not the precise details, but he's gone through the pain. He's gone through the loss. Note that love is a driver for Colbert. What I think Colbert is articulating is that by embracing our love for God and by embracing love for others, he's been able to experience to experience what we often talk about here, that beyond pain and loss and grief and sadness and suffering and betrayal, God has another word. If you've been here for any length of time, you've heard me say this on and off over the years. In fact, on and off over the months, I often say it. God doesn't let evil, God doesn't let death, God doesn't let pain, God doesn't let loss, God doesn't let grief have the final word. God has another word beyond it. It doesn't erase the pain. It doesn't negate it. It doesn't mean that we ignore the loss or pretend it didn't happen. It doesn't mean that we simply forget about the grief. It means that there is another word on the other side of it. That it's not the last word in our lives. God has another word for us. And when we embrace and hold on to love as our North Star value, love for God and love for others, we are able to heal. Maybe not immediately, but eventually. And it helps us, and it helps those around us as well. Right there where you are, I want you to consider what word God might have for you as you hold on to love even when it's hardest, even when it's most painful, even when it feels so easy to give it up. What word might God have for you? and how might that bless you and the people around you the people who need to see that there is another word beyond pain beyond loss beyond sadness that there's something on the other side friends the right things are worth doing persevering bears fruit making sure that people that the people we follow are leading well is a healthy practice Fighting for good and just causes, for our sake and for the sake of others, is incredibly valuable. But as you direct your energies in this life, fight the hardest for love. Fight hardest to retain love. Fight the most to retain love. And you'll live a signature life. Without it, we'll lose our way. Without it, we'll eventually fight dirty. Without it, will grow weary and hardened. Without it, will sink. That's what will happen. The second letter we read about today is written to the church in Laodicea. Laodicea was a prosperous city. And it wasn't just a prosperous city, but it was a publicly prosperous city. Laodicea was proud of its wealth. And its ability, its status. It was known also for its textiles, its production of medicine. There was little that Laodicea couldn't do on their own. What they lacked was a natural source of water. So they had to bring water in, they had to pipe water in. They they didn't have a source for cold water, they didn't have a source for hot water, which were important things to have. They didn't have access. To those things. And when they were able to pipe in water from other sources, by by the time it arrived to them, it was lukewarm. So it was almost useless. It wasn't hot enough for the things they needed hot water, it wasn't cold enough for the things that that needed cold water. It was almost useless. The message to the church there is you've got all these resources, you've got all this ability, you've got all this stuff. And yet you've become almost useless. That's the analogy that the writer draws on when he talks about them not being hot or cold. How so? How have they become almost useless? Well, it's right there in the words spoken to them, what it says about them. What it's what it says they say about themselves. They say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. That's the thing that has made them useless. They've adopted the mantra of the city. The church there has adopted the mantra of the city. We got this. We can take care of ourselves. We don't need anything or anyone. We can do this. It becomes clear that this is not just in connection to others, but this is also in connection to God. They feel like they've got everything, like they can handle anything, like they can take care of everything, yet they are crumbling. And they can't see it. The shallow security of stuff can blind us to the deep needs of the soul. Stuff brings with it a sense of security, and there's no need to ignore that. There's no need to ignore that having stuff gives us some measure of security, it provides certain things for us. But danger arises when we default to thinking that every need can be addressed with stuff, that any need can be addressed with just a little more or just something else. Because stuff can't address the needs of our soul. Stuff can't address the deep needs of the human soul. Among them, stuff can't address the need for connection. Stuff can't address the need for purpose. Those things can only be met by God and by the community God surrounds us with. A few months ago, uh, I was sitting with a family from our church community and we weren't catching up. They were at a moment where they needed some guidance and they started to tell me about the past year that they had had. And in that past year, there had been multiple hospital stays. There had been surgeries. There had been crises with the, with the extended family. Things were tense in their relationship. There were conflicts. And I was shocked because I hadn't heard anything about this. These were people that I saw with some regularity, and we didn't know anything about this. They didn't contact us, and I was like, why didn't you call us? Why didn't you let us know? At the very least, we could have prayed. We could have brought meals. We could have shown up. We could have stepped in. We could have helped out. You didn't have to go through this alone. And what they said broke my heart because you could tell in that moment when I said that that they were like, oh, yeah. And they said, it didn't even occur to us. We didn't even think of it. Now, there was no malice or pride in this family. There was no malice or pride as we talked. They went through stuff alone that they didn't have to go through alone. We live in a society that tells us that we have all we need to solve our problems. That all we need to solve our problems and live a good life is stuff. Is more blank you fill in the blank with what it might be. But we all know that that's not quite right, don't we? We've all been through stuff. We've all been through problems, through situations where more stuff wasn't going to solve it. More of X wasn't going to do it. We needed something beyond that. We live in a society that has independence and self-reliance as highest values. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a measure of good from independence, from self-reliance, but they were never intended to be ultimate values. And as we've made them ultimate values, we've lost something. When we foster lives that are guided by independence and self-reliance, we make it difficult for us to ask for help when we come to that point where we realize that we don't have what we need, that we can't get what we need from more stuff, we come to that point, we make it harder for us. And that probably happens more times than we realize. And it's not just that we make it hard for ourselves. When we normalize not asking for help, when we normalize just looking to stuff, when we normalize self-reliance and independence, we make it harder for the people around us who are desperately aware that they don't have the resources to meet their needs. We make it, we make it hard for them to think that it's okay to ask for help to think that it's okay to cry out in need because we've injected a message that says you should be able to do it on your own. And you're not good enough if you can't. Have you even tried? In a world that values independence and self-reliance, we must intentionally cultivate a sense of dependence on God and interdependence with others. Because that's what we were made for. That's the kind of condition that will meet the deep needs that stuff can't meet, that more stuff is not going to solve. One of the more vivid images of the community of faith is the body, And in the body, what comes across is this idea that every part of the body, which we are, is interconnected, is interdependent, relies on each other. And at the head of the body, guiding everything, connected to the body, is Jesus, is God. The image is one of dependence on God and interdependence with one another. We were not made to live a lone wolf kind of life. Our deepest needs can only be met by God and in community. Both the letters that we read to the churches sound harsh at times, don't they? It sounds drastic both in the, in the diagnosis and in the warning of what will happen if they don't change their course. But here's what I don't want us to miss. God makes sure to tell them before the bottom has fallen out. God makes sure to warn them before they hit the iceberg and their communities crumble because God loves us too much to let an iceberg catch us unawares. It may be hard to hear that we're headed for an iceberg, but it's better to hear about it than be left to sort of uh, ignorantly crash into it. God loves us too much to let an iceberg catch us unawares. He gives us the warning we need. He's going to raise the alarm because he loves us too much and doesn't want to watch us sink Because he didn't make us to sink. He made us to thrive. He made us to endure. He made us to live a signature life. Near the end of the letter to the church of Laodicea, Jesus says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It doesn't say, Figure it out, it doesn't say, Get your act together. It doesn't say, fix this yourself. It says, I stand at the door. God takes the initiative. The door is closed not from God's side to us. It's closed from our side to God, and God knocks at the door. God always makes the first move. He makes the first move to invite us into the signature life. He does that both through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and through His ongoing engagement with us to call us into the signature life. He makes the first move to redirect us when we're headed towards an iceberg. He raises the alarm and He makes the first move to restore us. Because even when we crash, God is there to put us back together. God makes the first move. So today the invitation is straightforward. Open the door. Open the door to loving the God that loved you first and loving the people he's given you to love. Open the door. Let God in. Experience the life and the life in abundance, the deep needs of your soul met. Open the door. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you that you don't let us head for an iceberg unawares. Thank you that when we're headed towards the bottom falling out of our lives, you raise the alarm, not with condemnation, but for the sake of rescue. Thank you that you don't raise the alarm and say, now figure it out. You raise the alarm and say, let me in. Let me in. Let me in. Lord, would we open the, day, the door this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, this is the first Sunday of the month, and on the first Sunday of the month, one of the things that we do together as a community is that we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper. This is something that has been passed down